Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. In this segment, we're speaking to author researcher, Mr. Jeff Carter. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Len. Thanks for having me having me on the show again. Thank you very much. People may know you as uh, we're 50-50. And the 50 reasons for 50 years that me and you made back in 2013, we actually started in 2012, I think, but very good work. Thank you for uh, convincing me to get on the project. I was kind of dragging my feet when you first gave me a phone call or email but I think between me and you just two people we made a really good series that stands the test of time of year after year people try to make a documentary and uh, of course ours was a bit lengthy when you add them all up but we had uh, a good 55 minute segments of of information power packed right to the point it's a good one yeah and it was a lot of fun uh, putting it together it was a very a very particular period of time and some of those episodes, or do, do we just kind of made it by the skin of our teeth? And we'll finish it off on, on late Thursday afternoon. I remember because there's kind of a nice little uh, bicycle route between your studio and the place I was living at the time. And so we'd finish up at, at the studio and post the show. And then I'd ride home, take about an hour, and then could have a look on, on the YouTube. And, wow, 40 people have seen it already, you know? <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. And you made the point in writing some of the scripts and, and, you know, directing as well as me is to say that just two people made this on a little studio, which is not very big compared to the mainstream media with all the resources and reporters. How is it that we can just do this? I mean, they have to be really going out of their way not to report on what has been found. Well, yes. And uh, I think ultimately for the mainstream, those are editorial decisions. So I would think some, some reporters would love to get onto that story. It's a great story. I think as Jeff Morley has, has, has said, and he was, he was a longtime professional journalist, it's a great story, but it was the editorial and the upper levels, which were ultimately not friendly to such a story, making the rounds. Because it called into question you know, all sorts of layers and levels of contemporary politics and calls into question the narrative of a uh, functioning democracy and, and everyone 
pitching in to do the best thing for everyone else and and all those kind of tired little tropes. So they don't want people kicking kicking those the, those dunghills over and opening up, you know, the the problems with that. I think we could do what we did because we had no resources. And so uh, we didn't need someone controlling purse strings telling us, you know, no, you can't do that and please do this. So uh, lacking that and because we have means of, of distribution for these type of programs that can carry it out there far and wide as long as people know to look for it, totally worked work to our advantage there. Yeah, I guess it was just nobody else had done something like that, encapsulated so many reasons because it was the 50th anniversary and uh, the men who killed Kennedy. But the reason I'm talking to you today is you have a new article that it came out just a week or two ago on Kennedys and King, and it's called Prody on Vietnam, NSAM 263 and 273, 60 years on. And this is National Security Action Memorandum that most people are familiar with, the 263. And then the, the 273, which kind of reverses that. I guess I'm just going to ask you to start this off. What got you interested to write an article on this topic? Well, if you want to go back to around the 50 Reasons Times, I think we were finishing the program off and uh, we were doing an interview for BOR related to that. And you, you, you called me a researcher and I had to go, whoa, wait a minute. I, I'm not a researcher. You know, I haven't written anything or, or, or um, researched any particular topic with, you know, within this larger structure with, with any sort of uh, uh, resolute uh, competency. Um, so I didn't consider myself that. But a couple of years after that, um, I just became interested in the backyard photos in a way that uh, I didn't think anyone else had quite uh, dug into. And so that summer, I did become a researcher and ended up writing a multi-part article for Jim's site, and he was kind enough to publish it. And I done probably, you know, at least seven or eight essays or articles for the Kennedys and King uh, website uh, since then. Sometimes book reviews or film reviews or responding to something that's, that's kind of current, but the backyard photos and then really two essays of the last year regarding uh, Fletcher Prouty are more uh, kind of classic research situations. So the Proudies came about because you and I both were, were kind of digging through his archive, which you have a series of, of containers full of photos and documents and the like. It's been, it's been very fascinating, but it also allowed me to get uh, a lot closer to where Fletcher was, was let's say, coming from. And what about his work was interesting and continues to be of interest. About a year ago, I think uh, we both kind of realized that there was kind of a new bit of energy in a campaign that seems to just pick up 
from like 1993. And, you know, it's like Back to the Future and featuring some disparagement of uh, Fletcher's reputation that was originally voiced in the wake of the JFK film. Uh, went away for a long time, but now it's come back in the last couple of years. Quietly, I mean, there's not a lot of people pushing this, but the ones that are that are 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 definitely trying, you know, seeking to get their voices and opinions out there to to have some kind of influence. But you know, going getting into where what they're talking about and where they're coming from, it's you know quite poor quality work, poor quality argumentation and poor quality grasp of the actual factual record. So this kind of rebuttal began with Jim DiEugenio. He took on people who were, who were sort of holding up in a scheme the work of a military records team at the ARRB in the mid-90s who interviewed Fletcher in 1996. They came into that interview with an agenda. The agenda was to knock down Fletcher's published thoughts and opinions, particularly on the security stripping that seems to have taken place for Dealey Plaza in 1963, among other things. Jim focused on that particular topic and was able to demonstrate quite convincingly that the ARRB panel were working from outmoded and outdated information. And what they thought was the true facts of the situation uh, was quite entirely uh, wrong. And Fletcher was correct. So that happened. Malcolm Blunt had gone over this kind of thing and he realized that he found these guys, like you said, when you read their private emails between them, they had a real agenda of trying to dissuade anyone from from thinking about this, to getting further into the real details of the assassination and cover-up. It's just like George Joannides. Like if you think you're going in to testify in front of George Joannides and you're going to get taken seriously, I mean, if you know who he is, then you just... You know, this is what happened when Fletcher called me right after he was there. That day, he came back and he said, like, I just talked to these guys. It's just like the House Select Committee on Assassinations. I just told them what they wanted to hear and I got out of there. Because there's no point. They already had an agenda of what they were going to write and how they were going to form it. And he could just tell. I don't know what more he knew about those guys, but, you know, he's he was pretty clever. And uh, he uh, was able to, to research on who's who in that area and like malcolm blunt found out they were sent over from the pentagon for this job that was their job yes and uh they they were actually quite fairly unprofessional i you don't you know if you're gonna i would call it a hatchet job but if you're gonna do a hatchet job on someone you don't write memos about it (laughs) describing what you intend to do because it looks bad and it looks bad because it was bad you know and just Basically, nothing from their entire presentation um, after it was done really holds up to scrutiny. It's, it's, it's just amazing. But for whatever reason, like, you know, new people pop up in the kind of firmament of, of people are, are trying to be influential voices, you know, in these type of parapolitical topics. And, and there's, you know, they, they get 
themselves convinced that Proudy got taken down by this esteemed panel and they just they just don't know what they're talking about. So I did an essay to follow Jim's basically taking on some of these topics, I think more directed towards the, uh, the ARRB and then around the time of the JFK film, Fletcher was being being attacked basically for having extremist ties with certain groups. But I think it's very plain to see once you could get into the details that it is a complaint based on just simply association and not upon an individual's actual belief system. So again, it was wrong. And, and yeah, so I finished that. That was about a year ago or so. And uh, just had a bit of an exchange with Jim about the article itself. And I, I said, look, we, it actually now needs a third article from the one you wrote and the one I've just finished basically discussing Fletcher's ideas and concepts and writings about Vietnam and specifically about those last months of the Kennedy administration, which produced the National Security Action Memorandums that made a discussion of which was in the JFK film, was one of the main items that Fletcher was very influential in presenting, informing that script and was a focus, maybe the primary focus, of attack by establishment critics uh, directed at the film. Most of that finger-pointing was going at Oliver Stone, but underneath that surface, those fingers were pointing at uh, Proudy for having the, the temerity to, to uh, advance such her- heretical notions. And... Um, and the, the Esquire magazine article, which becomes sort of a, a main focus in that in that second article that I had wrote about about Proudy, spends a little bit of time on the Vietnam thing, but was not particularly clear when presenting Proudy as kind of you know a a uh, unsettled personality who was prone to kind of crackpot concepts, particularly on Vietnam, as this article is suggesting, wasn't very clear on what it was exactly what uh, Proudy was saying on that topic that they had a big problem with. Uh, It wasn't clear on what Proudy's ideas and concepts uh, really were in the first place. So I didn't know the answer to that. I didn't think I was, you know, maybe the best person to to dig into that. I thought Jim should take that on because he's much more uh, learned uh, regarding Vietnam policy and the personalities involved in all of that. But he asked me to do it, and I thought, well, I think then perhaps the best approach here is just to dig into CD-ROM and the collected works and the similar things that you, you've put together over the years and just take it all on, read it on. And so that will, that will be the answer to my question of, you know, what was Fletcher Prouty's concepts on, on what happened in that particular period of time 
uh, the autumn of 1963. So it's the article is based on a close reading of Proudy's uh, many essays and articles that you have collected. Very good. So at least I have all that stuff for someone that, like, you had the interest to go through. Like, what was everything he wrote? And I think that's the the real gem of everything. If, if people say, well, I think he said this, or he didn't know that, or he left stuff out. Have you read everything he wrote? Because I have. And now that you had that, you know, it's like uh, you get a whole, uh, I think, more substantial area to stand on. So when you realize people who are just criticizing saying, you know, the truth can't be found. It's like, well, have you read what he wrote? Have you read it? You know, have you looked into it? Because if you haven't, well, you know, what what value is your research? Well, what value is your opinion? <laughs> which, which, you know, there are people with strong opinions on Fletcher Prouty. That is without question. But uh... yeah, but those are people that have never read anything of his. You know, they've de- t- tell me, tell me they've read a book or or both books or maybe four or five articles. You know, and then I'll give him some credit as saying, oh, hmm, I'm not sure I looked at it from that point of view, but, you know, uh, let's make your point, make whatever. But the people who who have it, they just they haven't read anything and they're just like parroting something that embarrasses themselves. <laughs> it's kind of yeah, humorous. Yeah, there's a lot of received wisdom, which is you, you're reading someone else's opinions and then adopting them as your own without really understanding if this received information is, is, is even, you know, correct, factually correct. So anyway, there's a, there's some vocal critics and they, from what I can tell now, having, having uh, gone into this in some detail, they often just don't know what they're talking about. They really just don't have a clue. All right. So you start off by talking about national security action memorandum 263 in which Fletcher Prouty worked there in the Pentagon. He had a hand in writing it with Victor Krulak. So obviously you read that, you read 273, and you thought, well, I'm going to have to put this down onto an article to help explain it to people. Yeah, because and Fletcher's ideas and concepts are, are fairly easy to grasp. I think you know the author that comes to mind that is working in the same territory is is John Newman. His JFK and Vietnam book basically covers the same the same period of time with the same individuals and the same uh, decision making. But it's very it's very uh, dense his works and it's a lot of detail and stuff. Whereas Fletcher and I think he really started into this topic as a series of articles in the early 1990s, sort of after JFK came out. And I think he was probably subject to some security classification related to his work in the Pentagon that that was still in play, in practice, at the time of the early 90s. So what he does is constantly refer to an official history uh, that I believe was published in 1990 or 91. It's a series of books called Foreign Relations of the United States, and they they generally have different topics. So there's a multi-volume set, Foreign Relations of the United States, 
on Vietnam specifically, and he in turn specifically recommended volume four of that series. Came out ninety ninety one, and so a lot of the material, which is memorandum generated by people within the Kennedy administration, and for the most part, were at one point or other top secret information. So I don't know that Fletcher was really capable of discussing specific meetings or specific things people said and the like. But once this book was published, he could just simply refer to the book, which had, which had the same information at the time he was doing all that. So the interesting thing, particularly about these, these NSAM, is that Prouty is, is, is working directly under Krulak, and Krulak's office is, is a central hub for, for this concentrated level of interest in finally codifying exactly what U.S. policy towards Vietnam, or more accurately, the created entity called South Vietnam, um, what those policies were going to be. And so he had a, he had a, he had a front row direct seat right in the middle of, of all this stuff. But his essays refer the reader to the Foreign Relations of the United States volume. Um, you have a copy of that that book, I believe. Yeah, and you you can get it online. It's been uh, copied so people can can read it. But I do have actual. Yeah, copy. there's links in the footnotes of the article. But foreign relations in the United States, a specific volume, they're on the Mary Farrell uh, website and can be easily found. I think they just have a Vietnam subject folder, and you can go there and and it'll it'll come up pretty easily. But I believe. Fletcher sent you a copy of that volume. Oh, yeah. He bought it for me. Yeah. I just said, uh, you know, whatever it was, like, you know, $30 or something like that. He said, I didn't know how to get it. I didn't know how to get it in Canada. He says, look, I know exactly what to do. I'll get it for you. So in the inside cover is a little note of him, you know, saying here's the most up-to-date information about all those meetings that were happening between the White House and uh, Krulak and uh it's astounding that people haven't read all these documents, but they're there. Yeah, and so it's in 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 a way sort of um, a little different take than John Newman's, which is which is concentrating on all the details and the like. I mean, it's it's definitely fascinating, but Proudy's take is different because it's simpler and it gets the whole point across in a way that basically anyone can sort of see the light so to speak. And so I mean, he makes the point very clearly, get this volume, go to August, and you will discover that late in August, there, there is this move to have high-level meetings to discuss Vietnam and what the policy for Vietnam should be from, from this point moving forward. And Proudy's advice is just count the number of meetings that happen over the next five to six weeks, look at who was at all those meetings, and, and look at what's being discussed, and then finally look at what it all culminates in, you know, where you know, the train is heading to a destination, and the destination is at the end of this whole five to six-week process. 
And that destination was National Security Action Memorandum 263. And 263 states unambiguously that the policy of the United States uh, would be to have South Vietnam begin a program to train its soldiers and its personnel to take over the functions that at that point in time were being done by American personnel with the idea that by the end of 1965, the Americans should be able to basically pull back most, you could say all, because you know the ones that would, would stay behind would be doing um, just pretty routine duties that uh, these type of people do in, in most countries related to embassies and the like. But essentially replace the Americans with Vietnamese to proceed in, you know, the civil war that was, was occurring that, at that point. And then, and then the, the Americans would not have that direct involvement. So that was, that was the culmination of all that work. And that was, that was the policy. And this is what Fletcher emphasized over and over. This was President Kennedy's policy. Yeah, actually, uh, in the book here, Foreign Relations in the United States, 1961-63, Volume 4, it's uh, August to December 1963. In the inside flop, I have the little note that he wrote me, and I'll read that. Is that that's fine, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, January 22nd, 1996, Len, this is the best JFK and Vietnam book you can get. It is current in that it is the exact months when JFK was making his Vietnam policy. Note in those late and crucial days how many times JFK had White House meetings. Then note how many times General Krulak, Miami boss in the JCS, was there. Every time he came back, he would call a few of us and we'd have a conference. Then he would assign us tasks for the next meeting, and it was usually the next day. This should clear up a lot of questions he said that you may have, and I don't see why serious researchers and truthful writers have not made use of this class one book. And I hope you like it. And we're now even again, the book costs $30, right? Chow Fletch. <laughs> so, yeah, he's just saying he was there in the meetings. He got to hear firsthand daily, like from August on, the meetings and Kennedy's policy and intent. And it's not like... The- yes, and, and the records that are collected are basically, it's, it's firsthand primary source information. So it's, it's kind of a brilliantly simple instruction, uh, and basically anyone can follow it. Uh, I found by sitting and reading through in that, that volume, you know, the activity of those six weeks, uh, I did have a much more informed and uh, precise understanding of how this policy came about and what it what it what what it would mean is a, you know a great process. So I think that's to to Proudy's credit. He's not he's not holding himself up as the the ultimate expert here. He's he's trying to get people involved with the with the record in a way that they can understand for themselves what what was actually occurring rather than just nod their head to someone else's uh, idea of um, what what the actual facts are. And, you know, by by uh, pointing this book out to me, 
and just helping me get it. You know what he's saying is, here's what people should be looking through. I know, and maybe I know more about the topic than I can uh, talk about because uh, I want to keep my pension and, you know, things like that. But here, it's there. Just read it. Read it for yourself. Very true. Very true. So anyway, that was a, that was a, a fascinating bit of reading some months ago going, going through all that. And of course, the other thing that happened some weeks later was uh, a national security action memorandum was drafted while Kennedy was, was still alive. That would in, in you know, a major way or two completely reverse uh, the intent of 263. And that was NSAM 273. So that is fully part of this story because 273, as Fletcher pointed out, it's hard to get a handle on where it came from. So with his guidance, you can go through that six-week process earlier that ended up with 263 and the production of that that policy directive uh, is pretty easy to follow. And then he's absolutely correct. 273 shows up out of nowhere. There's no documentation or anything in the record anywhere which can explain why or, or how it came about that his special assistant, McGeorge Bundy, drafted 273 with this, with this major, major change. And the major change was with 263, the focus of American policy was to assist in this effort to have Vietnamese personnel replace American personnel so the American personnel can be, can be removed from the country. That's, that's the focus of, of American's policy in Vietnam. With 273, that focus changes from that to the primary focus being America's intention to help in, in any way possible the South Vietnamese arrive at some, some form of victory to win the war. And where that led, as we know, after that particular action memorandum became officially recognized, but under the brand new President Johnson, not, not by Kennedy, it served as a reversal of the, the intent uh, behind the policy that was uh, drafted back in October. And it happened quickly. That happened six weeks later or so, by, by, by late November. Uh, pretty, pretty, pretty rapid. But in a way, because the draft was dated November 21st, it could be presented, and it has been presented, as actually reflecting Kennedy administration policy, not Johnson administration policy. But I think, I think it's pretty clear lacking any sort of record or piece of information which would attach Kennedy himself to this new concept that was being expressed by 273, uh, it's pretty clear that it was not something that could be accurately described as Kennedy administration policy. And, you know, that, of course, opens up a, a can of worms. And I don't know that there's really any collected group of, of papers or, or oral histories or, or anything that really identifies 
where this draft came from. I mean, McGeorge Bundy was at a, an event in Honolulu, which happened, I think, November 1920 that year. It, it was called so the American officials could respond to a few unforeseen events related to the coup which removed South Vietnam's President Diem from power. And that occurred early in November. So there were a few things there, but uh, there was nothing about the aftermath of the coup, I think, that would directly make high-level officials, you know, decide that Kennedy's policy had to be reversed, right? There was some kind of major crisis that, that uh, precipitated this, this rash event. There really wasn't at that time. And there was some rough waters um, related to that coup. Well, I, they knew those would show up going into the whole event in the first place. So it wasn't like that was, you know, some kind of shock to the system. Well, I, I think the shock is that, that if you look at 263 and you start reading it, you'll see Kennedy's intent to withdraw to end the war from the American point of view. And then 273 changes it from help them to help them win. And then later mm-hmm. on in the draft, it also says, uh, this is uh, Section 4, which has been crossed out that they didn't go through with it, but it is of the highest importance that the United States government avoid either the appearance or reality of public recrimination from one part of it against another. Right? You know, that's kind of saying uh, if this... Uh, maybe assassination attempt if JFK doesn't pull off. We've got to make sure that the FBI or CIA or we don't get caught, that we, you know, we can't have one part of the government blaming the other part. Of, you know, it's just, it, it's so wide open for interpretation, but it's really strange that that's in writing there. And yeah. that's what struck me as strange. Why would they even bother writing that? Right, and the other strange part of that draft was, I mean, it starts out kind of anticipating an event that hasn't happened yet, which was supposed to be when Kennedy got back from his Texas trip, he was going to have a meeting with Ambassador Lodge, who was the American ambassador to Vietnam, to discuss events in Vietnam since, since the coup. But the memo is already speaking, you know, that this, this meeting has happened and it's anticipating the decisions that would be made of out of it. Uh, that is anticipating uh, the necessity to, uh, to have NSAM 273 and the brand new language. Um, but, you know, as Fletcher says about it, is that Kennedy would never approve that would not have improved that, that memorandum uh, whatsoever. It's a reversal of his policies, which he had spent all those weeks just, just before that, um, you know, working, working his bureaucracy uh, to make sure that that particular policy became set. Yeah, it's uh, very strange. And uh, it, I don't think anyone really talked about it as much. Uh, Fletcher Prouty mentioned it to Oliver Stone, and that's kind of part of the film where they say, well, here's his policy, and we believe that Vietnam may be the final straw that when Kennedy was withdrawing, uh, those guys acted. 
well, maybe, you know, has kind of has spoken, in, certainly in some interviews that he did, about that. I think he, he had generally formed the idea that the grievances against the Kennedy administration were fairly widespread. <laughs> there was, there was a lot, the people had a lot of problems with where he was coming. And, and the, gist, the gist of the problem became this guy meaning JFK, JFK, he can't be reelected in 1964. We just, we cannot allow that where we want, and this is speaking of various power centers uh, at the time, where we want things to, to go, uh, to head to, and in, 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 in speaking generally, what you could say um, is guiding this is maintaining maintaining the thrust of American policy and American foreign policy initiatives that uh, flowered during the Eisenhower administration. Um, that's, that's kind of what the power centers uh, uh, approved of and wanted to continue. And um, uh, Kennedy uh, wasn't playing that game. Uh, he was he was moving things in other directions, or as Proudy said, he was doing things the way it used to be done, the way things were done in a, in a previous time, and and that was what uh, his many enemies uh, could not countenance, and they feared um, that Kennedy's policies uh, would have a momentum after his re-election, uh, that they could not control. And that uh, the ship of state, so to speak, uh, would, would be veering off to destinations that uh, uh, were not approved by them. So that was, that was the sort of central uh, problem, so to speak, that had to be, had to be solved. It was the re-election thing, so... Um, uh, that's, that's about as good an explanation as any I've ever seen, that's for sure. But the Vietnam thing, like one of the folks who was a, a friend of Fletcher's and interviewed him very successfully several times was John Judge. And John Judge always had that story about uh, the first Monday after the assassination, his mother worked at the Pentagon and got called into a meeting and was next thing she knew she was writing memorandums predicting a 10-year land war in Vietnam that would create upwards of 60,000 American casualties, which is right on the money. It's exactly what happened. I think Fletcher, in in other of his essays, uh, suggested that the Vietnam War was, was basically planned years before with the idea that this would actually turn into a war at some point in the future, and it would create, let's say, economic activity that favored the sponsors of the war, uh, the sponsors of the activity that would inevitably lead to the war. And so, you know, a president uh, deciding that, no, we're, we're not going to have this war, uh, at all, uh, just uh, uh, was not was not acceptable to them. Yeah, it's strange, and um, 
I can go along with that, that uh, this may have been the final straw that uh, when people got around some kind of businessmen's uh, meeting and said, this guy's got to go, this pulling out of Vietnam was the final straw. And, you know, maybe the Bay of Pigs was the uh, the start of it, where uh, certain people said that, you know, that we're, we got to get rid of this guy. And, uh, the, you know, the well, problem is blaming was... Lee Oswald, like blaming that patsy and sticking and clinging to it like a flat earth society, you know? Well, that was that was the story. Right. And uh, so, yeah, they're not they're not they're not moving from the story. They haven't moved from the story. That still remains uh, the official the official account of of what went down. And just saying that they're keeping records locked up still. 60 years later, they're not releasing records. I mean, the only adult conclusion you can draw is they have something to hide their involvement in it, you know? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, there's either either something there that is, they know is going to be compromising. The other other way to look at it, uh, I believe, is that with what's remaining... They don't really know what about it may be cause problems or, or may not cause problems. I think what they understand is that there's, there's a research community out there who, who will know, <laughs> right? It could make just a bleak reference to one individual, but you know, there's going to be a researcher out there who's going to go, Hey, wait a minute. I know who that guy is, you know, and, and, and suddenly uh, a bunch of connections that uh, were previously not known can be made. I think it's like a defensive move based on uh, based on that uh, more than there. I think if there was anything incriminating or smoking gun style, um, it would have been it would have been uh, destroyed uh, long, long ago. Okay, let's say it's destroyed, but we have somebody like a George Joannides, right? who's in charge of things down there in Miami, and, and he's on the panel, uh, you know, advising Blakey. I mean, it's... it's in HSCA yeah, times. Yeah, it's re- ridiculous, right? And so you wonder that it how is. many people on the heads of the Assassination Records and Review Board had that opinion that, uh, I mean, we'd heard from, um, you know, Doug Horn that his bosses believed in the lone assassin. They believed in the Warren Commission. You know the heads of that. I mean, it's it's almost um, it's fucking idiotic. Well, it is because I mean, we're we're partisan on this because because we've done a lot of reading and research and 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 you know have formed pretty strong opinions because that's where the actual record takes you to uh, to strong opinions and and a complete understanding that that the official. Uh, version of events uh, just it not only is not true but can't be true in, in many ways it's, it's it's absurd well I guess what's of interest is when you see the opposition to this when they uh, they keep clinging and putting forward the, you know there's only three gunshots and lone assassin Lee Oswald did it and uh, you know even the people who don't want to take Victor Krulak or, or others I mean Fletcher wrote I think seven letters Right. He only gave me one of them. 
right? The letter from Victor Kurlock. Mm -hmm. But there was other people who said that's Ed Lansdale. It doesn't mean he's a shooter, and it doesn't mean he's the guy in charge of everything. But it just means he's playing a role. He's doing something that day. And like Krulak says, what the hell was he doing there? You know, did anybody right. ask him, yeah. right? And so if you just yeah. say, well, he's on duty. He's on duty, and then you go, okay, well, uh, the military uh, structure, the intelligence community themselves uh, decided that um, their figurehead had to go. And then you can you can just say, okay, well, I guess that's what happened, matter-of-factly like that, without having to um, learn about Ed Lansdale's family tree or this or that. I mean, I don't think anybody who even says, yeah, that's Lansdale, okay, um, but he's not a shooter. And uh, we don't think everyone took orders from him. But he, if he's there that day, that means something's in the works, you know. And who did he work for? He worked for Alan Dulles, right? And Alan Dulles at the farm that weekend. And, um, you know, it, it just it just opens up that whole picture. It says, well, you know, of course this is what happened, you know. Like, if you want to well, dig up the details. I think the fact, the fact that Malcolm Blunt, uh, with his prodigious research in 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 all those files and and uh, at the national archives and everything, um, has basically corroborated things that Fletcher was saying back in the early nineties. Is 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 certainly uh, fascinating. Um, Fletcher would say Lansdale was CIA guy. He was he was undercover of. Uh, U.S. Air Force, but he was a CIA man. Uh, Malcolm Blunt says he's found the information that, that absolutely confirms that. Uh, Blunt also found uh, the information in Lansdale's own papers, which puts him in a suburb of Dallas uh, the night before the assassination. So, I mean, that doesn't completely mean he was walking around in Dealey Plaza the next day, but but uh, uh, it takes away any argument that he was like in Colorado or Los Angeles or some other place at the time. Um, he was in the he was in a suburb of Dallas. Uh, he woke up that morning there, so uh, that's pretty interesting. Um, I just my this my personal take is. The man's back is to the camera. You, you, I understand uh, that uh, Fletcher and a number of other people uh, subjectively based on experiences that I certainly, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't uh, uh, seek to undermine or, or, or reduce. Uh, but, Ultimately, their idea is a is a subjective idea which cannot be independently confirmed uh, because the man's back is to the camera, and uh, so I think it's 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 really interesting uh, that idea, but uh, but uh, I I don't know whether it it rises to the level of an established. Uh, well, you know, I read the letter from that. Victor Krulak, so I'll take Victor Krulak's word, you know. He worked with them every day, and Fletcher worked Absolutely. with them. Absolutely, and, and his By the way, just a, a, a note, Jeff, is uh, sure. I think they stayed in Fort Worth the night before at the Hotel Texas. No, that was the week before. 
Oh, that was the week before. That was the week because, before. Because uh, I and think at the they time found of the hotel receipt. Film, that, for, was, that was the latest information they had. Yeah. But it was the week okay. before. But now uh, new information in the last 10 years has been discovered, which actually places him in a Dallas suburb uh, that morning. Wow. Well, there you go. Like Fletcher says uh, at, at the, the little video clip that I made of him, I, which you can't find, by the way. It's ghosted by uh, Google. You type, try typing in the name, type it in word for word. You, that won't show it. It won't show it. If I gave you the actual address, you can click on the link and you'll find it. But otherwise, uh, yeah. Yeah. Ed Lansdale in Dealey Plaza, you know. Um, yeah, well. Strange, you know, and, and that, that just says thing. something there, but. Yeah, that ghosting is a thing. It, yeah. it it is a thing. It does happen, and so uh, and so yeah. if there was nothing there, you know, that we wouldn't have any reason to worry about it. But like I said, I, I, um, you know, it's just it's just of interest the number of footprints and and bones you can find of this thing. If you're a paleontologist, you you haven't found a a living dinosaur, but you found skeletons, you found the footprints, you found, you know, you know what I'm saying, mm-hmm. fossils, mm-hmm. right? So the thing is, um, we're looking at all these pictures of where people were and why were they, you know, why did they retire from their job unexpectedly <laughs> on uh, October 31st or November 1st? And then they're in Dallas uh, on the day when Kennedy's killed. It means something. And it, it just doesn't mean that he's a gunman and whatever, you know, it means like, you know, uh, same thing when you talk about Jack Ruby. Well, how much did he have to do with it? You know, well, he had something to do with it, right? But, sure. um, yeah. you know, so, but um, I think that I learned so much more about studying what Fletcher Prouty wrote about and, and talked about um, than to be uh, afraid of these ideas that, uh, you know, I think the common folklore was that we'll just carry on Kennedy's policies. We'll just carry it on, right? And that's well, not... Well, yeah, we it was beyond folklore. That was, that was, uh, uh, well, you know what I mean. Unison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that was a, a deliberate attempt to mask what was a, a very serious uh, reversal policy. And it took 30 years for it to even sort of start to scratch the public at large's uh, attention. 30 years for that really, you know, just, just under 30 years for that to sort of get out. And uh, well, well, yeah, and 92 people, people mentioned that about the Oliver Stone film, that they're, they're going, this talk about he was withdrawing from Vietnam in 263. There's certain people that said it never existed. This is just uh, anecdotal, whatever. And, and uh, it took somebody like Fletcher to point out and say, no, these are actual documents. I worked on these. Here they are. You can find them. Get the books from the government printing office and they'll explain the whole thing. You know, That's right. And he and Oliver came under attack for doing so. Okay, well, very good. Your article is up at Kennedy's and King, and it goes through this. You know that that the White House report U.S. troops seen uh, out of Vietnam by 65, the Stars and Stripes? Mm -hmm. I looked high and low for that. You can't really find it, on at least on Google, but uh, it's in Fletcher Prouty's book. And then you have to find these other weird search engines that are more fringe, that will find all, and it's getting to be like that, where you can't trust 
the, the big search engines to find these important, they've been uh, co-opted, where they just won't let you find right. what you're looking for, which is a shame in itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, you know, that's why these sort of more independent uh, groups um, exist, and people can jump over the firewall there, you know, such as, like, the Mary Farrell Foundation or uh, your Fletcher Prouty archive and, and, and the like. I mean, the information is there. You just have to sometimes do a little bit of work uh, uh, to, to get your hands on it. Well, I like that That's you wrote sure. this article to help uh, illuminate that for people who want to look into it further. Um, you know, like you talk about the obfuscation of NSAM 263 and, and uh, you know, like, like we just mentioned. Right. It's almost as if they tried to hide it as long as they could. And then, you know, good Lord, don't talk it about NSAM 273 because that's the complete opposite. And then you wonder, well, how did that happen? And you start looking into that, you know. Uh, so that, that's very interesting. And uh, it's up at Kennedy's and King right now. Kennedy's and King. That's right. And I'll just say, Len, uh, after I completed this, um, I went back and I sort of watched the the Mr. X scene uh, from the JFK movie, and uh, it, it it really clarified just really how much of Fletcher's influence uh, ended up in the script, certainly in in that whole little sequence. So uh, I would say if anyone's interested uh, uh, in that, uh, read the article and then and then dig out the Mr. X sequence. And uh, uh, anyone can uh, sort of share in that uh, revelation. All right. Very good. Jeff, before we wrap up, is there anything that I didn't get to, if we didn't cover it, you want to talk about uh, on this? i just give you the last word. Um, no, I think, I think we got everything. Uh, I would certainly thank uh, Jim Diogenio uh, for, for opening up a space on Kennedy's and King. Uh, for a few articles uh, on these topics. Um, I think you and I both totally appreciate that and uh, just would encourage folks to uh, check it out. And uh, because, uh, you know, we're at a major anniversary of, of uh, the Kennedy assassination, but it's also the major anniversary of these two very, very critical and crucial uh, policy directives uh, in American history. And uh, in a way, uh, I think the, the creation of 273 in its own way sort of announced that uh, there, there are people running things who, who seem to understand that that the United States Constitution wasn't quite running the way uh, most people uh, expected it would or should or, or how it's uh, written. I believe the president has uh, uh, the primary power over creating foreign policies. And, and 273 and Kennedy's immediate demise upon the drafting of that was in its way uh, announcing that the president doesn't make policy anymore, and uh, and the persons and the forces that do um, are opaque, 
uh, I don't think uh, I don't think Americans in general uh, know know who these people or or entities um, really are. Okay. Well, I'm sure we'll be hearing from you in the near future on other projects. And in the meantime, thank you for writing and uh, keeping some of these articles into the uh, public sphere. And uh, all right, and King is one thank good place. Thank you, Land, for your kind words. Okay, very good. Thank you very much, Jeff. Speak to you soon. You bet. Look forward to it. Okay, good night. You're listening to Black Op Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. Today, we're speaking to author Mr. John Armstrong. Hello, John. Hi, Lynn. You know, so many times you've called me or I've called you and you talk, and I think it's five minutes and then half an hour goes by, and I went, this should have been a show. You should have told me about this. And a couple of times in the last month or two or three or whatever, you phoned up with a tidbit of information, you add more. Finally, I say, look, I'm not sure if you have an article, but just let's talk about this again, because you're always coming up with things that I think are very interesting to the research community. And uh, uh, lots of people like listening to you and, and discuss your work. Last time you called me, you said that you've almost sold out of your books, that the last time you were, uh, well, I think Rob Reiner mentioned you, that he thought highly of your work. Uh, all of a sudden, you got a flurry of book sales. So that's good. Almost out of books. Well, will you reprint them? What what will people do then? No, the book, um, gosh, there have been so many changes, not changes, additions. The book has not changed. There's nothing in that book I would uh, rewrite or redo. Uh, I just make, uh, you know, additions. I guess that's what your website is for. When you have something new, you get to add it. So if people say, look, we bought the book and now what's the latest? And they can check at harveyandlee.net. Yeah, that's the latest work. Yeah, very good. Well, about a week ago, you called me with uh, some information, and I said, look, let's just talk about that. I'll record the phone call, and so often, that's how these conversations are. They're just a casual conversation of people talking about the research, and I'm only too happy to to give you time and record this and and put it out on Black Op Radio. Oh, gosh. (laughs) There are so many different things to get into. Um, uh, You know, if I have a idea in my mind, a thought on my mind, I'll express it to you. And one thing leads to another and it turns into a longer, longer conversation. The one thing that I have realized is that there, gosh, little bits of information, a sentence here, a sentence there, it changes everything. It's, it's much more than people could imagine reading the transcript. For, for, for example, we all read things differently. We all read things from a different point of view. When I read the Warren volumes years and years ago, I didn't know what to look for. I was just reading to become informed, become somewhat knowledgeable about the assassination, the volumes, things. And I read the whole thing. And I suppose the only thing that really stuck out was a couple things. When I read the volumes, one was uh, Oswald's ability to speak Russian. Uh, I took German in high school. I had a neighbor was German, and I had a from him. I learned to become a bit familiar with German, not much, but I could do basic sentences, and uh, I always made good grades in my German class, and and that was it. But when I went to Germany, I've been to Germany several times. If people talk very very slow 
and they talk very basic, like they're talking to, you know, someone in kindergarten. I could make out enough to get by, but repeating repeating or holding a conversation from my end uh, with the grammar, it was just, no, forget it. I mean, so here we have Russian, Cyrillic alphabet, totally different. I could study German for years and never become proficient. Yet Oswald supposedly drops out in the ninth grade and teaches himself Russian. And according to the people in the white Russian community uh, that were interviewed by the Warren Commission and the FBI, Oswald's Russian was just perfect. Um, George de Mornshield said he preferred the reading uh, Russian books rather than English, preferred speaking Russian rather than English. That's, and, but then you read, and with that you read Marina's talk about he came to, uh, when she met him in Minsk, uh, he spoke Russian with a Baltic accent. So naturally, I just, like everyone else, assumed that you know, uh, he taught himself Russian and somehow managed to speak very, very fluent Russian. But it didn't make sense to me. I, I couldn't understand it. I mean, I'm not really, I don't think, any more intelligent than the average person. If I can't understand German in a couple of years, how could Oswald speak Russian just perfectly? And one by one, as I got into the Kennedy assassination and started talking to people, I wanted to know about Oswald. Oswald is the overlooked part of the assassination. I mean, people have gone through the medical evidence, number of shots, the, the transcript from the you know, police recordings, and they try to make sense out of those things. And when I started this, uh, there was only a few books on Oswald. One of them was written by you know, his wife, ex-wife, with Priscilla McMillan, Marina. Uh, then there was by his mother, and there was another book um, by uh, Robert Oswald. And I read those books, and they all seemed to follow the same line. Oswald did it. So the other thing that struck me <clears throat> was his um, height discrepancies and eye color discrepancies. You know, I didn't pay a lot of attention to it, but I remembered it. Uh, I remembered the height discrepancies. There weren't much, a couple of inches. I thought, okay, people just make mistakes. And then I read the interview with Palmer McBride, which was Commission Exhibit 1386-1386. And here's a man that's talking about, he worked with Oswald in the Pfister Dental Laboratory in New Orleans in 1957 and 58. Now, Palmer worked for Nassau for years, a very intelligent man. <clears throat> and he talked about he and Oswald were together when Sputnik went up in, you know, August 4th, 1957. And then he was with Oswald at Christmas time, took Oswald over to a friend's house, uh, William Wolfe whose father was a, an usher, and they went to the Boris Goodenough Opera together. So I, I checked these dates. I couldn't understand. Uh, something's wrong. How could Oswald be in New Orleans in 1957-58 when Oswald's in Japan? So one by one, I started to talk with people who knew Oswald in Japan. Richard Sear. Uh, we went and visited Richard Sear in uh, Rhode Island. And then uh, Zach Stout, who lived in El Dorado, Kansas. Uh, Zach was very interesting. He met Oswald from the day Oswald arrived in um, uh, Japan, was with Oswald, bunked in the same bunk. And we started talking. I just said, well, you know, Zach, uh, 
how well did he, uh, did he speak Russian? And Zach laughed and he said, where do people get these silly ideas? And I said, well, did he have a Russian book? And he said, man, no. He said, most of the time we were out on maneuvers in the South China Sea and all you could carry was a backpack. I said, no, no books. No, he said, we didn't have room. It was nothing. Uh, did you ever hear him talk anything? You know, he, communist stuff. No, never. That's just silly. And he talked to uh, uh, other people who knew Oswald at the same time. You read all the reports you, and you, you, know, you talk to these people. And one by one, things just started not making a lot of sense. He doesn't speak any Russian in Japan. Yet when he comes to California, he speaks very good Russian, passes the Russian army exam. So, you know, but yeah, well, you know, John, there's a, a lot of discrepancies and uh, I urge everybody to get your book or I think some of the stuff we've gone on in several interviews. But I think today I just want to refresh your memory. What you were talking to me about about a week ago was this timetable of when people called in that Tippett had been shot and the timings that you, you were uh going on about how this is another real breakthrough key that when you analyze when they say someone called and when they did it 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 throws the whole thing into turmoil well let me go off on that then a a little bit we're talking about the tippet shooting yeah okay look when i wrote my book it was very 30 years ago uh, i was convinced that the cia was behind the assassination but to write a book about that you know just flat say, I think the CIA was involved in it, is a little much. So what I did, my my book's year by year by year, 52, 53, 1954, 1950. So at the end of each chapter, I did a little synopsis on what the uh, CIA was doing in 1953, 54, 55. And almost every year, they were overthrowing some dictator somewhere, which went right up to 1963 when they removed our president. And all these little tidbits, one by one by one, led me to think about the Tippett shooting, the FBI, and the FBI's involvement. And it starts when, uh, you know, the day after the assassination, FBI Associate Director Clyde Tolson sent a memo to Alan Belmont, and he wrote, results of the investigation have been reduced to written form. We can prepare a memorandum to the Attorney General to set out Evidence showing that Oswald's responsible for the shooting. That's one day after the assassination. So they were not interested in getting to the truth of the matter. They'd already made up their mind. Day after the assassination, we will show that Oswald was a Marxist, a former defector to the Soviet Union, member of the Fair Play for Cutie, uh, Cuba Committee. We will set forth items of evidence which make clear Oswald was the man who killed the president. One day, one day after the assassination, that's it. So in my view, I, was, um, I, I began to look at what the FBI had done, one, two, three, four, you know, the things that they've done that showed me their involvement. For example, in, in August, when Oswald was passing out the uh, Fair Place of Cubic Literature in New Orleans, Charles Hall Steele was helping Oswald pass out this literature. He was an active FBI informant. The cameraman who filmed the uh, Oswald handing out the uh, leaflets was filmed by Orby O'Quinn, an active FBI informant. You had the FBI themselves taking 35 millimeter photographs of Oswald passing out this literature. So what happens a few days after the assassination? There's Oswald on television 
handing out literature for millions of Americans to form an opinion. By God, if he's handing out Castro literature, he must be the guy who shot the president. And that's before the assassination happened in August, the FBI's doing this. And then you go look at Guy Bannister, who used to be the head of the FBI office in Chicago and very close friends with Hoover. Supposedly, they talked two or three times a week. Now, why wasn't that reported by the Warren Commission? There's Oswald in the summer working in Guy Bannister's office. So one thing leads to another. And one of the things that I focused on, or not focused on, was Oswald's, the, the Dallas police confiscated Oswald's possessions. But by the way, I'm telling you this just to lead up to, to show you how I got involved with the Tippett murder. The FBI has done one thing after another, after another, after another, and none of it was innocent. It was all planned. So the Dallas police, they search Oswald's rooming house and search Beckley and Ruth Payne's house. They gather 225 items of evidence, and these items are initials and dated by the Dallas police. Well, late afternoon, early evening, they get a call from the FBI, and they, they turn over, the Dallas police turn over 225 items that they had collected to the FBI. The FBI puts them on an airplane, sends them to Dallas, uh, sends them to Washington, D.C. headquarters. Well, three days later, uh, on the 26th, the FBI returns 455 items to the Dallas police. So wait a minute. How can 225 items turn into 455 items? The FBI added an additional 230 items. Now, that's real easy to understand if you know how to do it. For example, the Dallas police had a handwritten inventory of the items they took from the Payne's house and from Beckley. They had a typewritten list of items. They're all the same, identical, just one's handwritten, one's typed. But then on the 26th, three days later, the FBI and the Dallas police do a joint inventory where they photographed and listed all the items. Now there's 455 items. So, I went to the National Archives. I wanted to find out what's going on. So it took me about two weeks. Then I got, I don't know, 30 or 40 items a day, whatever they would give me. And all I did was I had, you know, the Dallas police list on the second, on my left, left hand, the 455 items on the right hand. It became real obvious that the 225 items collected by the Dallas police were initialed and signed by the Dallas police, every item. But the items given uh, that the FBI returned to the Dallas police the 230 items, no initials, no dates, nothing by the Dallas police. So it's easy to see that the FBI added these items. Why? Well, some of those items were used to frame Oswald, absolutely used to frame Oswald. I could talk for hours on what they found and what they did, but <laughs> that's probably for another, another time. I mean, for, for example, when you begin to realize, and you're looking at all these things, that most of the items in the National Archives are not original items. Oswald's school records, for example, not a single original item. They're all photographs. The uh, Klein Sporting Goods, looking through the uh, documents from Klein Sporting nothing, only photographs. So I asked to see the uh, Klein's microfilm that was given to the National Archives. Well, they brought out canister, an empty canister, no film, nothing. It's gone, disappeared. So you start to see a pattern of what develops in what the FBI is doing. 
and they're doing everything they can to limit Oswald, Harvey and Lee Oswald's background to one person. They're combining school records. They're combining employment records. Um, this is what they did. And one by one by one, you can prove these things very easily. For example, I talked about small little um, a word here, a word there, a sentence here, a sentence there. I stumbled across a report from the HSCA about Frank D. Benedetto. Now, Frank D. Benedetto worked directly for Jared Tujak in New Orleans. He was Oswald's supervisor at the Tujak company. He was still alive. In fact, he bought Jared Tujak's company after Mr. Tujak died. So I went to New Orleans. I met him. He was in the same office, the same secretary that worked with him in 1955 and 56 when Oswald was there. So how tall was Oswald? About my height. How high is that? Well, 5'10", 5'11". Oh, okay. When did he work for you? Because the HSCA reply, uh, reported that De Benedetto said Oswald worked for two jacks a year to a year and a half. Now, that's a long, long time. A year to a year and a half. Because the Warren Commission said he only worked there like two weeks in October, November, December, and a week in January. That's it. That's two and a half months. But De Benedetto, Oswald's direct supervisor, said a year to a year and a half. So I went and just met with Frank. And I said, when did he start? And he said, no, summer, summertime. And then I remember Robert Oswald's book. Once again, these little sentences, these little words. And Robert Oswald wrote in his book, he got out of the Marine. I know I'm skipping around, but I'm trying to prove a point, show a point. Robert Oswald said that when he got out of the Marines in 1955, he was there from 1952 to 1955, July, he visited his mother and his brother at 126 Exchange Place. And his brother was, and he only stayed there one week in New Orleans. And his brother was working for an import-export firm, talked about shipping packages to Hong Kong. And so it's in Robert Oswald's book, Bingo. He was working for two jacks in July and June of 1955. When did he quit? About a year later. I remember it was end of the summer. It was hot. That's what Frank said. So he works there from 55 to 56, one year. In fact, uh, Gloria Callahan, the secretary, said she, he was there, I believe it was April of 1956, yeah, when she, when she had her first child. And she was secretary. She took leave. So why is that important? Well, it's real important. If he's there in June of 1955 to August, September of 1956, who is attending Warren Easton High School in September and October of 1955? That's Harvey. Harvey Oswald is attending Warren Easton in September, October 55. So what does the Warren Commission, what does the FBI do? They collect all of Jared Tujak's records. And the only ones they present to the Warren Commission are October, November, and December. After, they said, Oswald quit school. That's how they combined Harvey and Lee's whereabouts in 1955 and 56. Then you've got Paul McBride, who told Air Force Security Office and then the FBI that he worked with Oswald from October of 1957 to summer, early summer of 1958. But Oswald was in Japan. So what does the FBI do? Well, in these 230 items of additional evidence that the FBI sent back to the Dallas police, there's a couple of W-2 forms, one for two jacks, one for the Pfister Dental Laboratory. In the Pfister Dental Laboratory, 
the W-2 form says he worked there in 1956, not 57 and 58. So you've got these W-2 forms created by the FBI and given back to the Dallas police. So what's unusual about these W-2 forms? They're typed with the same typewriter. I sent them to IBM. The IBM archivist said they were created with the same typewriter. There you got the FBI combining these two people together. So, you know, one by one by one, you can go through all this stuff and see what the FBI did. Yeah, but John, I, I hate to interrupt you, but you're you're, you're going to relive the, your whole book here. Not trying to, not, no, no, not trying to do that. What I'm trying to do is to show people what the FBI specifically did to cover up Oswald to make it appear that he's guilty. I can, you know, I was going to say the Stripling Junior High thing. When Robert Oswald told newspaper reporters that his brother went to Stripling, he told the Warren Commission that his brother went to Stripling. But and when I interviewed the assistant principal, he said he gave the records to the FBI. When I wrote a Freedom of Information request, they don't have anything. Why? Why is that important? Because when Oswald, when Harvey Oswald was attending Stripling in the fall of 1954, Lee Oswald's in New Orleans going to Beauregard. I'm trying to show that all of these things that the FBI did were intentional, and they were intentional with covering up the truth. Now, you'd go to the Tippett murder, and I and many people know, I mean, there's how many people have walked from Oswald's rooming house to 10th and Patton. Some people say he had enough time. Some people say he didn't have enough time. There's videos on that. You know, Erlene Roberts said he left uh, the rooming house at 1 o'clock, 101. And then the FBI says uh, he shot Tippett at 116. That's 15 minutes. Can you walk nine-tenths of a mile in five minutes? Boy, you have to be pretty fast. I mean, people say it can be done. So I looked at that. And then I looked at all the witnesses. And I, you know, I, I did a big report on the Tippett assassination, the Tippett murder. But I had not at that time when I did it a couple of years, several years ago. I knew that uh, you had a second wallet. I knew that uh, Captain Westbrook was not only involved, he participated in it. You know, I knew that um, the timing was the problem that never seemed to work. In other words, you had witnesses that said, one lady, Mrs. Higgins, it was Mrs. Higgins, said that um, she was looking at uh, watching TV or listening to the radio, I can't remember which. An announcer came on, said it's 106, and she heard bang, bang, bang. That's pretty clear. And then you had Scoggins that said he called his dispatcher who called the police immediately. Then you had um, Helen Markham who said she thought the shots happened at, I think, 106 also. A couple of other people pinpointed the uh, shooting at 106, 107. But the Warren Commission nor the FBI had paid any attention to that. So I thought, how can you look at this? So I began to study the transcripts on the Warren Commission. And those transcripts are not easy to follow. There are two transcripts, and this is very, very important because this shows exactly how the FBI changed the timing of the Tippett murder. They had to. Now, Oswald was, Harvey Oswald was killed on Sunday, period. He's dead. So the FBI has an easy time of changing the time. There's no Oswald to, 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 to interview. He's dead. He's gone. So <clears throat> what you've got, it took me a long time to you know, figure this out and read this and understand it. Because the Tippett shooting was convoluted 
the timing was convoluted by the FBI. What you've got is uh, the Dallas police recorded all of their transcripts. Uh, they had two channels, channel one, channel two, and they had a dictabelt machine on one uh, channel one and the uh, autograph machine on channel two. So all of these things were recorded. Now, the easiest way to explain what happened is by reading the transcripts now. In other words, telling the audience what the transcripts say now. But to read them and not view them as you're reading them is difficult. It's not easy. I'll try my best. The recordings from the Dallas police were submitted to the Warren Commission, and their Warren Commission exhibit 705. Now, this is not going to be – I'll explain it. People can go and look at it. Uh, by the way, you can find exhibit, Commission Exhibit 705 on Google, and you can find the that, – that's the Dallas Police's uh, typewritten version. Then you can go to Commission Exhibit 1974, 1974. That's what the FBI created and sent to the Warren Commission. And all you got to do is lay those two side by side. So let me begin. The way the Tippett shooting happened was we all know that Tippett pulled into the driveway, uh, in front of the driveway, two houses from 10th and Patton. We all know that Scoggins saw the car, Tippett's patrol car, pass in front of him slowly. Helen Markham saw the police car pass in front of her slowly. Uh, Scoggins saw a man walk over to Tippett's patrol car. A few minutes later, he shot Tippett as Tippett got out of the car, was walking around the front fender. Helen Markham screamed. Somebody shot him. All right. At the same time, Domingo Benavides is driving down 10th Street West. I have that backwards. Tatum was first. Domingo Benavides followed him. The shooting happens, bang, bang, and um, Benavides turns his yellow 1958 Chevrolet pickup into the curb and stops. He's about 15 feet from Tippett's patrol car. Jack Tatum is five or six car lengths ahead. Kenton Patton, he stops. He looks in his rearview mirror. Now, Benavides told the Warren Commission that he ducked down when the shots happened and stayed there. Then he got up, saw Oswald as Oswald was slowly walking to the curb, emptying shells at the back of Oswald's head. He said he very clear, and he said Oswald had a squared-off haircut. Now, you and I probably wouldn't notice that, but Benavides was a part-time barber, and he did notice it. He said Oswald's his hair was chopped off, looked like he needed a haircut, squared off. Now, when we see pictures of Harvey at the police station, his hairline, his neck on the back of his neck, goes below his collar line, not squared off. So Dr. Benavides sees the man going around the end of the corner, around the Virginia Davis's house, crosses um, uh, Patton behind, behind Scoggins' taxi and walks towards Jefferson Street. Benavides gets out of his car and he tries to grab the police radio. He's not familiar with the police radio and he clicks it a couple of times. Well, the police dispatcher records that. I mean, it's recorded on the police dispatch thing. And the time is one. You can read it. In fact, I'll tell you the page number. Page number is 17. It's this commissioning exhibit 705, page 17. And there's a time on there, 108, 108, twice. In other words, he clicks the microphone, and then a couple of seconds later, he clicks it again. And 
it's recorded as 78. Now, 78 is Tippett's patrol car number, 78. And in parentheses, it's 108. That's when Benavides tried to call the dispatcher, 108. Now, Benavides did not know how to work the radio. Well, a few minutes later, a couple minutes later, um, there's a man who parked his car, ran over to find out what's going on. His name was Temple Bowley, Mr. Bowley. Bowley grabbed the microphone from Benavides, and he reported the shooting of the police officer to the dispatcher. That's recorded at 1.10 p.m. In fact, Bowley, when he made his affidavit to the uh, Dallas police, said that in his affidavit. I looked at my watch, and it said 1.10 p.m. A man was trying to use the radio in the squad car, but stated he didn't know how to operate it. Okay, now, what we've got here is the shooting probably happened at 106, just like Mrs. Higgins said when she listened to the radio, public radio, and the announcer on the radio said it's 106 p.m., and she heard bang, bang shots. Okay, two minutes later, after Bully watched Os- after Benavides watched Oswald shoot Officer Tippett, unload his gun, walk slowly up to the sidewalk, then hurry around the corner of the building, he left. Okay, Benavides gets out of the car, walks over, grabs a police dispatcher a couple minutes later, tries to call the police, but that's 108. And here comes Bowley a minute or two later, and he does, he knows how to use the um, police radio, and he reports the shooting at 110, and that's recorded. Now, it's very, very important for people to understand what's going on with the police transcripts that are recorded by the Dallas police. What I mean by that is there are codes in there. Uh, they've got, for example, 602 code 5, 603 code 6, 6, all these codes. All right. Now, if you take the time to read these things, to understand these things, it's very easy. At 110, the police dispatcher received three separate codes. One of the codes is 602 code 5. 602 was the number assigned by the Dallas police to the Dudley Hughes ambulance. Code 5 was a code to tell the police dispatcher that the ambulance is en route to the scene, in this case en route to 10th and Patton, which is only a few blocks away. So at 110, the ambulance driver, Jason Butler, reports 602 Code 5. Dudley Hughes is en route to 10th and Patton. Seconds later, the dispatcher received a different message, 603 Code 5. 603 was the number assigned to ambulances from Baylor. And Code 5, again, meant the ambulance was en route to 10th and Patton. At 110, the dispatcher received another message, 605 Code 5. This is the number assigned to the ambulance from the Veterans Administration Hospital. Code 5, the ambulance is en route. All of these contracts, contacts between the dispatchers and the three ambulances were recorded at 110 by the dictaphone machine on Channel 1. Therefore, the shooting of Officer Tippett had to have occurred several minutes before 1.10 p.m. Now, all of these codes you can see on Commission Exhibit 705, page 20. Now, after Bowley's brief contact with the police dispatcher, the Dudley Hughes ambulance arrived. 
Driver Jason Butler removed a dark blue jacket from Tippett's body, and together, Bowley and Butler loaded Tippett's body into the ambulance. Butler, the ambulance driver, was later interviewed by the House Select Committee. How long were you on the scene? I was on the scene one minute or less. From the time we received the call in our dispatch office until Officer Tippett was pronounced dead at Methodist Hospital was approximately four minutes. Signed by Jason Clayton Butler, witnessed by Clarence Day. This is September 25th, 1977, House Select Committee. Now, they took Tippett to the uh, Methodist Hospital. They got him out of the ambulance, took him into the emergency room. He was pronounced dead by Dr. LaCorey at 1.15. Now, with these timelines, with these police recordings, we can understand the importance and the significance of 108 and 110 recorded by the Dallas Police discs and transcripts on Channel 1. Tippett was shot a couple of minutes before Benavides got out of his pickup, before he walked to Tippett's patrol car at 108. So the shooting probably happened at 106. Now, we get into how the, what the FBI did. On November 29th, a week after the assassination, once again, there were two machines. One machine had the vinyl belts, and the second machine had discs, vinyl discs. Now, on November 29th, the vinyl belts from Channel 1 and the vinyl discs from Channel 2 were given by Chief Lumpkin, Dallas Police Chief Lumpkin, to the Secret Service for transcribing. The Secret Service copied the belts and discs with a tape recorder and gave the original belts and discs to the FBI. Now, the reason they put them on a tape recorder was simple. These vinyl discs and vinyl belts were very fragile, and if they were played over three or four or five times, the quality of the recordings were severely diminished. But you put the original belts on a tape recorder, and a tape recorder is good for, for years. So the Dallas Police Communications Director, his name is James Bowles, he also made tape-recorded copies of the belts and discs. But Bowles said the FBI did not return the belts and discs to the Dallas police until March of 1964. Now, that's very important. They were given the discs November 29th and December, January, February, March. Four months later, the FBI had the originals for four months. Okay. In early December... The Secret Service, Dallas Police, FBI, they probably were listening to the original vinyl dicta belts and, and recordings. But their attention was not on the tip of the shooting. Their attention was focused on you know, events and situations related to the assassination of President Kennedy, not on Tippett. So on December 3rd, there was a 10-page transcript prepared and given to Dallas Police Chief Curry. It was very brief, 10 pages. It was transcribed from Channel 2 and talked about the president's arrival, the motorcade, the shooting, escort to Parkland Hospital, and a little bit about the Tippett shooting. The document was published in the Warren volumes, this 10-page document, as Sawyer A. Once again, you can look at it on Google. Just type in Warren Commission Sawyer A. Now, two days later, a two-page transcript was prepared by Sergeant Hensley from Channel 2, and it was published in the Warren volumes as Sawyer B. 
Now, in early 1964, Bowles made a tape-recorded copy of both Channel 1 and Channel 2. Bowles kept a copy for himself and gave one to the FBI. Now, the FBI, at some point, listened to the recordings and likely made transcripts of conversations from both Channel 1 and Channel 2. It appears they paid little attention to the Tippett murder. Now, let's go back to Earlene Roberts. The housekeeper told the FBI that Oswald left the house a minute or two after one wearing a dark, this is very important, a dark zip-up jacket, a dark colored jacket. Now, people need to understand this. Harvey leaves the rooming house wearing a dark colored jacket. What happened to that dark colored jacket? He wasn't wearing the dark colored jacket when he went to the Texas theater. It disappeared. That's another story. Now, the distance from the rooming house to the Tippett murder is nine-tenths of a mile. The FBI, anybody, knows it's not possible for Oswald to have left the rooming house at 101, 102, and walked nine-tenths of a mile, you know, in four to five minutes. I mean, the world's record at that time was, what, running four minutes a mile for one mile? And this created a big problem. Look, if the FBI knew that they'd done their job, and I, I know they did their job, the shooting happened at 106. Oswald left the rooming house at 102, 101, 102. Four minutes later, the murder happens. The FBI 100% knew that Harvey Oswald did not shoot Tippett. He couldn't have. Impossible. Not enough time for him to walk to the murder. And then you've got the manager of the Texas Theater, Butch Burroughs, said that Oswald arrived at the Texas Theater between 101 and 107. And then you've got people, for example, I talked to Jack Davis. He uh, became a minister in Dallas. He said, I was there prior to the, the, the movie started at 120. Before that, she had cartoons and credits and, you know, news. And he said, Oswald was there, um, you know, before any of that happened. So Oswald could not possibly have shot Tippett at 116 and been at the movie theater before that. So anyway. I think that the original Dallas police dictabelts and the discs given to the Secret Service were genuine. But after the Secret Service gave the vinyl dictabelts and the vinyl discs to the FBI, we don't know what the FBI did. We know they were copied onto a tape recorder, but that's all we know. Now, you cannot make changes to the original vinyl discs or the dictabelts. You can't do it, but you can make changes to tape recordings. That's easy to do. And all you have to do then is play that tape recording back onto a vinyl dictabelt, a brand new vinyl dictabelt or a new vinyl disc. And there you go. You've got an original, so-called original, a fabricated dictabelt or disc with the information that you want. So there's no proof that that was done, but it was possible. What I think happened was the FBI chose to ignore the Dallas Police transcripts and they simply changed the timing without any evidence to 116. Now, J. Lee Rankin was the general counsel for the Warren Commission, and he read the two-page transcript that was given to Chief Curry, and when he read this, he realized that he'd never been given a complete set, a complete transcript of the Dallas Police Channel 1 and Channel 2. In early January, remember, Bowles, had given the FBI tape recordings. So 
On March 3rd, Rankin, the general counsel, wrote to the FBI Director Hoover, and he requested the Bureau obtain transcripts <clears throat> of all radio transmissions from Channel 1 and Channel 2 from the Dallas Police radio station, covering the period of 1220 to about 6 o'clock on November 22nd. Now, on March 6th, three days later, Hoover wrote a letter to the Dallas police and requested the transcripts. So on March 20th, two weeks later, the police furnished a transcript to the Dallas police. Now the Dallas police, I'm sorry, now the FBI is paying attention to the transcripts. This is when it becomes very obvious that there's a timing problem. Now, two weeks later, on April 7th, the FBI gave a 96-page document to the Warren Commission consisting of typewritten transcripts from Channel 1 and Channel 2. Now, if you look on Google, they're together, Channel 1 and Channel 2. Channel 1 consists of pages 1 through 66. Channel 2 is pages 67 through 96. They're all together. Now, the FBI gave ranking two transcripts of each channel. Apparently, the FBI, even at that time, was unaware the transcript contained, contained timing entries that conflicted with their time of 1.16 that they had established as the time Tippett was shot. So Rankin knew the FBI had interviewed several people who witnessed the Tippett shooting. Agents filed dozens of reports, examined the medical records, and the time of his death. Rankin knew the FBI reported 1.16 as the time of shooting. But in the 96-page transcript, Rankin found numerous unexplained timing errors. On page 19 of Channel 1 transcript, the police dispatcher had contacted three ambulances, like we already discussed, dispatched by the Dallas police to the site of the Tippett shooting. All of these contacts recorded at 110. Domingo Benavides made contact with the dispatcher at 108, followed by Bowley's contact with the dispatcher at 110. Bowley reported, it's a police officer. Somebody shot him. Now, these entries were on the original Dallas police dicta belt from Channel 1, which means that Tippett was shot a couple of minutes earlier. Rankin did not understand how the FBI could fix the time of the shooting at 1.16 when the Dallas police recordings indicated that Tippett was shot sometime before 1.10. Rankin was not happy and was perhaps beginning to mistrust the FBI. So in an attempt to circumvent the FBI and get original transcripts from the Dallas police, Rankin drafted a letter on May 28th to Forrest Sorrells, special agent in charge of the Secret Service in Dallas. Rankin asked Sorrells, if he could please, quote, please arrange to record the Dallas Police Department tapes of radio broadcasts over Channel 1 and Channel 2 between the hours of 12.30 and 2 p.m. Sorrells likely notified Hoover of Rankin's request because Sorrells never responded to Mr. Rankin's letter. A month and a half later, without hearing from Sorrells, Rankin had no choice but to ask the FBI to obtain the radio broadcasts. On July 16th, now these dates are becoming very, very important. And I want people to understand something. Do we know when the Warren Report was issued? Late August, 1964. That's the Warren Report. In my view, the FBI is holding on to material, not responding quickly at all. 
waiting for the report, Warren report to come out so they won't have to explain their revised timeline that they were going to give to the Warren Commission. July 16th, Rankin wrote to Hoover, we call attention to the fact that in the Channel 1 transcript, there appears to be an error on page 19, immediately following the words, what's that address on Jefferson? The entry appears to be a timing of 1.10 p.m. This is Rankin, asking Hoover about this. This would be inconsistent with the known time of the Tippett shooting, and judging from the time entries on the preceding page, this would appear to be a typographical error. Rankin then requested Hoover, quote, obtain the original tapes, the radio broadcast, and prepare a new transcript from these tapes. During the course of preparation of a new transcript, we ask that you attempt to clarify this apparent discrepancy. Now, 1964, Rankin was questioning the time of 1.10 p.m. on the police transcripts, just as I'm questioning the same time of 1.10 in 2024. It's been there all this time, and I can't believe that people haven't focused on this, how they just accepted the Warren Commission and the FBI's timeline of 1.16. All you got to do is put these documents side by side. So we're going now to talk about the FBI's revised timeline, which is published in the Warren volumes and it's commissioning exhibit 1974. It's also on Google. On July 21st, now remember, one month before the Warren report, only one month before the Warren report is issued, Dallas Police Chief Craig made a series of 16 Channel 1 dicta belts and five Channel 2 discs available to an unidentified FBI agent. This unidentified agent then reviewed and transcribed the dicta belts from Channel 1 and transcribed the discs from Channel 2 at, at Dallas Police Headquarters. The FBI agent finished this work on July 24th. July 24th. The FBI now had two tape-recorded copies of Police Channels 1 and 2 and typewritten paper transcripts. After reading Mr. Rankin's letter, FBI officials realized there was a problem. Erling Roberts told the FBI that Oswald left the room at 101 to 102. Dallas police tapes recorded Benavides and Bowley contacting the police at 108, 1010 to report a policeman had been shot. Three ambulances were dispatched by the police to Kent and Patton and were en route at 1.10 p.m. The FBI knew the distance between the rooming house and 10th and Patton was nine-tenths of a mile. They knew Oswald could not have walked nine-tenths of a mile in four or five minutes and shot Tippett at 1.06 p.m. as reported by several witnesses. At this point, senior FBI officials realized the man arrested by Dallas police could not possibly have shot Officer Tippett. However, Oswald was dead, and he's their only suspect. In order to protect the FBI's image and to prove to the public that Oswald killed Tippett, senior FBI officials made the decision to fabricate the time that Tippett was murdered. The FBI's conscious decision to fabricate evidence and blame Oswald for the Tippett murder is only one part of the complicity in helping to cover the true facts of the assassination of President Kennedy. Rankin requested Dallas police transcripts 
from the FBI on July 24th. Nearly a month later, on August 20th, the FBI had still not given the transcripts to the Warren Commission. We have to wonder if FBI officials intentionally revised, withheld their revised transcript with the numerous changes in times, knowing that the government printing office would soon begin printing the Warren report. By waiting as long as possible before giving the revised transcript to the Warren Commission, FBI officials knew the commission would have little or no time to question the accuracy of their transcript. On August 20th, Hoover wrote to Rankin and advised that a new transcript had been made. Hoover also told Rankin, quote, however, due to the badly worn condition of the original tapes, which was not true, certain portions are being checked for accuracy. The transcription will be furnished to you in the immediate future, end quote. Five days later, on August 25th, the FBI's revised transcript was given to the Warren Commission. The Warren Commission identified that as Commission Exhibit 1974. Now, I'm going to explain now what the FBI did on Warren Commission Exhibit 1974, as opposed to the original Dallas Police transcript, which was 705. I wish all you people could have the Commission Exhibit 705 laid next to Commission Exhibit 1974. Easy to see, very easy to see. Now, what they did is there were two transcripts. The original Dallas Police transcript 705 shows that at 1.08 p.m., a citizen used Tippett's radio, which was caller unit number 78, that's Tippett's number, to contact the police dispatcher. But on page 48 of the FBI's revised report, the number 78 has been changed, Tippett's patrol car number, has been changed to the number 50, which is the Dallas police code for an unknown automobile cruiser. A second number 78, which was on the original Dallas Police Commission Exhibit 705, was changed by the FBI to number 488, a number assigned by the Dallas Police to supervisors and detectives of the Special Services Bureau. Again, all you have to do is lay these two documents side by side. The change from the number 78 to 50 and the change from number 78 to 488 was an attempt by the FBI to hide contact between the police dispatcher and someone using the radio in Tippett's patrol car, number 78, at 1.08 p.m. Further, if you look just to the right of those two changes, number 78 and the 488 and 50, the FBI reported the conversation between number 50 and number 48 with the dispatcher as garbled. Garbled. The original Dallas police transcript shows the police dispatcher's contact with Boley at 1.10 p.m. The newly revised FBI transcript, which is, again, Commission Exhibit 1974, changed the time Mr. Boley contacted the police dispatcher from 1.10 to 1.16. So, 
1.16. Now there's enough time for Oswald to have walked from his rooming house to 10th and Patton to shoot Tippett. The original Dallas Police Transcript, 705, shows the dispatcher's contact with Dudley Hughes Ambulance at 110. The revised FBI report, Commission Exhibit 1974, changed the dispatcher's contact with Dudley Hughes to 118. The original Dallas Police Transcript, 705, shows the dispatcher's contact with the Baylor Ambulance, number 603, at 110. The revised FBI report changed the dispatcher's contact with Baylor to 118. The original Dallas Police Transcript, 705, shows the dispatcher's contact with Dudley Hughes Ambulance, code 70, I'm sorry, 602, arrival time at 10th and Patton at 110. The revised FBI report changed the dispatcher's contact with Dudley Hughes to 118. And finally, the original Dallas Police Transcript shows the dispatcher's contact with Dudley Hughes and the Baylor Ambulance at 110. The FBI changed the dispatcher's contact to 118. The original Dallas Police Transcript shows the dispatcher's contact at 110. Again, the FBI changed it to 118. The Veterans Administration time was changed from 110 to 118. The VA Ambulance Code 5 en route was changed from 110 to 119. See, one of the things people don't realize, because politely, they don't understand what they're reading in the transcripts. I doubt if anyone listening to this radio broadcast knows that three ambulances were dispatched to 10th and Patton. And you only notice that after you first understand the ambulance codes and what the code was for en route and what the code was for arrived on site. Anyway, at 110, ambulance driver Jason Butler told the dispatcher, from out here on 10th Street, 500 block, this police officer is just shot. I think he's dead. The FBI transcript changed the dispatcher's contact with Butler to 119. Now, the FBI's transcript, Commission Exhibit 1974, given to the commission on August 25th, just before the Warren report was released. No more letters from Rankin. The Warren Commission based the time of shooting on the FBI's revised transcript, 1974. The timing entries that appeared on the FBI's revised transcript were changed from original times recorded on the Dallas Police Transcript, 705. These changes in time were of little consequence and barely noticed in the 106-page document. But these changes were very significant, changing the time of the shooting from 108 to 110 to 116 gave Oswald just enough time to walk from his rooming house to 10th and Patton and shoot Tippett. In complete accordance with the above analysis, the two following documents show that Tippett was declared dead at Methodist Hospital by Dr. LaCorey at 1.15 p.m. How was Tippett declared dead at the same time he was shot? Anyway, 
There was Dallas police officer Davenport reported, quote, en route, we met the ambulance carrying, en route to the scene, 10th and Patton, we met the ambulance carrying the wounded officer to Methodist Hospital. We assisted in getting the officer to the emergency room and observed the doctors and nurses trying to bring him back to life. At 1.15 p.m., Dr. LaCroix pronounced him dead. That was by police officer Davenport. All this happened at the same time Tippett was supposedly shot. What makes much more sense is the 110 time frame noted on the original Dallas police transcripts and confirmed by Boley at 110. These documents, these two documents, offer proof that the time stamps on the Dallas police dispatcher's transcripts were altered by the FBI. With the FBI's amended transcript and the FBI reports of carefully selected witnesses, the Warren Commission concluded the shooting of Tippett has been established at approximately 115 or 116. A small adjustment in the time of the shooting was all the FBI needed to establish the guilt of an innocent man. But since 1964, researchers have mistakenly relied upon the FBI's revised transcript as to the time of the Tibbet murder. That's all, then. Well, that is quite a bit to uh, think about and uh, food for thought, right, for the research. That's uh, just so interesting all these times when you think about it, just the, once again, the fraud of the Warren Commission. And it's from the top down. It's from the FBI down. The fix was in. Well, but Lynn, look, the point I'm trying to, the point I was trying to make since I first talked to you this morning, started talking about, you know, little quotes from Robert Oswald, little quotes from this person, little quotes from that person. This is just another example. People don't need to read books. Just quit reading books, read documents, and, and start to pay attention to the, to the very, very, very small, minute thing. I mean, look at this Tippett murder. Look, I'm not trying to say anything about that I'm an expert on Tippett or anything like that. All I'm trying to say is people in general, not all people, but people in general focus on the big picture and they don't get anywhere. It's these little tiny one line, one or two word things that make all the difference in the world. And, you know, whether it's Frank D. Benedetto telling the House Select Committee Oswald worked for a year to a year and a half, whether it's Zach Stout in Kansas telling me that, no, Oswald didn't speak any Russian, or Palmer McBride saying he worked with Oswald at the dental laboratory in 57 and 58. I mean, all these little things. This is what we have to look at in order to really understand what happened in the, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in, in the assassination. I mean, it's no different than what I, look, I was in the oil business for years. I wrote, I don't know, a thousand or more checks a month. And it took me about five seconds to look at that money order that was allegedly used to pay for the rifle to realize it was fake. All I did was look on the back. There's not a bank stamp on it. It's little things like that that can really change the whole outcome, the whole thinking about virtually everything in this whole entire episode. If you look at it, there's nothing that makes any sense. Nothing. I mean, let me let me say one more thing. Something that people need to also think about. For years, I could never, never understand why Captain Fritz never asked Oswald a single question about the Tippett murder. I, I didn't understand that. 
I mean, it took me 20 years of thinking about that to finally understanding the reason. And the reason was very simple. Now, this is 100% speculation on my part, but it's backed up with fact. The last person to have hold of that second wallet at the Tippett murder scene, according to FBI agent Barrett, was Captain Westbrook. And Captain Westbrook got in his car and reported that he'd be, you know, directly coming to police headquarters. So he shows up police headquarters. And I believe that there's two things that could have happened to that wallet, and only two things. That wallet was either thrown in the trash or given to Captain Fritz. Now, we have to remember that there were lots of police officers, FBI agents, filmed by Ron, Ron Ryland, that saw that wallet at 10th and Patton. So that wallet is going to get out to the public sooner or later, unless, unless he can give that police wallet, the second wallet, to Captain Fritz, and Captain Fritz is going to immediately realize that's a throwdown wallet because Oswald already had a wallet and identification from his back pocket that was seen by the police when they hauled him to the uh, police headquarters. So in my opinion, Fritz takes one look at that wallet, knows it's a throwdown wallet, and somehow gets every police officer, everybody at 10th and Patton, including the FBI agent, to never mention that second wallet. I mean, you had Croy interviewed by the Warren Commission, Westbrook interviewed by the Warren Commission. Um, Captain Talbert was the one that was holding that wallet, uh, filmed by Ron Ryan. I think it was Captain Talbert. Uh, all these people at 10th and Patton, they knew about the second wallet. But yet not one officer, not anything, was told of the Warren Commission. To me, that means that all these police officers had to have been told, you don't breathe a word about this to anyone. And that leads me to Captain Westbrook, or Captain Fritz, rather. I think that he dared not ask Oswald about the Tippett murder, because I think he knew darn well Oswald was innocent. And if he had asked Oswald about the Tippett murder, where did you get the gun? How many shots did you fire? Where did you, you know... He and Oswald were not alone in that interrogation room. There were Secret Service people, police officers. Um, Harry Holmes was there. I think U.S. Marshall was there sometime. He might have been very concerned that Oswald might have just said, look, I work for the FBI, I work for the CIA, whatever. I don't know. That's my speculation. I think that Captain Fritz knew enough not to ask Oswald about the Tippett murder. So from that point, we have to wonder about Captain Fritz's so-called handwritten notes that weren't discovered until they were given, what, to the ARRB, what, 40 years later? I mean, I've lost my faith in the Dallas police. Yeah, and the ARRB and any uh, official investigation. 100%. All right, John. Thanks so much. I know we went a little longer than we thought, but uh, thanks so much for uh, uh, just talking to me. Because, you know, several times you called me, I never record these. And I think, you know, oh, that would have been great. People want to know about this. So that's just... Well, uh, let, let, me, let me ask you a question. Is there anything that you have a question about related to uh, what we've talked about today, the, the, the Dallas Police Transcripts? No, it's just, for this is my understanding, like, 
I didn't realize that other ambulances had been called. And once they're turned around, and once you get the time of like, oh, of course he's, he's killed then. He's, uh, you know, and then why would they make up numbers? Why would they get, I mean, then you just keep going, oh, it's some kind of cover up going on already. So, but we'll leave it like that. But one thing I just want to say is that I don't try to, to push an opinion either. I mean, I let people listen to your research and uh, let them think about it, consider it. And like you said, you, you had a big rash of book sales just because that uh, Rob Reiner had said that uh, he thought very much of your work and your research. And to the point that he said, look at uh, some of the things just take too long to discuss. That's why I didn't put him in, in his latest you know documentary podcast. But he said there's things that you have dug up that are really worth digging into. 60 years later, we're still learning. Well, let me just say... When I went to when I met Rob Ryder, we you know we just sat in his living room. Uh, Jim Hargrove and I sat in his living room. We we had a big screen. He had a big, great big screen, and we had all of our a lot of our documents and information with us. And I was extremely impressed with his knowledge. This guy uh, he he is not an armchair uh, researcher. He he knows a lot. He's he's been um, he's one of the he's one of the um, he's as good as any researcher uh, in the Kennedy assassination thing uh, about remembering times, places, dates, things uh, as anyone. He's very well, very well um, informed. Good, good. It seems like you guys had a mutual admiration for uh, for the work that you were trying to do and reveal to the American public what really went on. You know, but it's not so much it's not so much admiring him. It's it's more of a you know he's a he's a movie guy, a TV guy, uh, an entertainer type of guy, and I didn't I I didn't have any. I was very surprised, very very pleasantly surprised that he was so well informed. I yeah, I, that's good compared to like a Tom Hanks or the Bugliosi yeah. or these guys yeah. and uh, you know yeah. the Posners yeah. that want to parrot and just cling every which way that Lee Oswald did it, and it's a lone assassin and go back to sleep and. Uh, for those of us who are interested, he's saying, no, here's the flaws, here's the problems. Just check the times, check the dicta belt. Here's what actually happened. But anyway, let's wrap it up for today. I really appreciate your time again, John. And uh, I'll be in touch with you. And congratulations that your book sales were going so well. and You're only down to a couple left. Yeah, by the way, uh, this what we talked about today is on the Harvey and Lee website. Uh, people just need to scroll down and look for Dallas police transcripts and all of the documents that I was talking about. They're all outlined. They're all, you can see all of what I've talked about in real time. Just it, it's all there. Very good. We'll make links to that. Okay. Thank you again, John. You bet. Bye-bye. Good night.